God, we thank you for the privilege of being here this morning and to be able to sit under your word. God, we know that the work that you want to do in our lives is under the surface. Lord, it is in the place of our hearts. And yet, God, we confess this morning that uh, that work that you want to do is very uncomfortable for us. Um, God, if we're honest today, some of us would rather not uh, allow you to do a work in our hearts. And yet, Lord, we come to you today and we, we welcome that kind of work. Lord, we desire you to reveal things deep within our hearts that we'd rather be kept hidden. Lord, I pray that you'd use your word to do that work, that you would expose and convict and stir within us, O oh God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Heart disease is often called the silent killer uh, because many are unaware that they are at risk when they actually are. However, there's an early warning sign. It's called cardiac calcification. Cardiac calcification develops when parts of the heart harden, that arteries uh, within the heart can calcify due to calcium buildup. So the soft tissue can actually become hard and brittle. Now, small spots of calcification uh, can be tolerated, but the issue is, is that it can continue to grow. And the danger is that parts of the calcified heart uh, can never soften again. They remain hard and restrict blood flow. Now, I share this with you not because I'm worried about the condition of our physical hearts calcifying, but because I am concerned about another kind of calcification. It's a type of cardiac, cardiac calcification not detected by a simple CT scan, but it can only be detected by the Word of God. This morning, I'm concerned about a calcification that can take place in our spiritual hearts. See, similar to how our physical hearts can harden, can calcify, so too can our spiritual hearts. Not by eating by a bunch of fast food, but by living a life so consistently in sin that your heart can actually become callous towards God. See, our spiritual hearts are best, they're healthiest when they're soft, when they're receptive, when they're open to God's word and to the teaching of who God is. The problem is due to sin and continued sin, our hearts can harden like stone. Notice the warning in Hebrews chapter three. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I bring this up with, with you this morning because in our study throughout the book of Daniel, we've learned that God's people had lost their nation. They had been taken into captivity by Babylon. And 2 Chronicles chapter 36 explains that the reason for this is because of the hardness of their hearts. What, what, what was going on in here within God's people. That 2 Chronicles 36 tells us that they lost their, their cherished city, Jerusalem, that the temple, the place of worship was demolished because their hearts turned to stone. In fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 13, uh, it describes the, the king over God's people, King Zedekiah. It describes him this way, that he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who made him swear by God, but he stiffened his neck 
and hardened his heart against turning to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Is the condition of God's people during this time is that their hearts were hardened. And we see that spiritual callousness, this type of, of spiritual calcification is incredibly dangerous. Now, what I find amazing about Daniel chapter 5 and, and trying to understand the place of this chapter in the book is that God actually uses the pagan, prideful, hard-hearted King Belshazzar, who's now ruling over the Israelites, he uses him to show his own people the danger of a hard heart. That, that he uses this foreign pagan king for God's people to look at a hard heart and say, oh, wow, that's what that looks like. That's what God does to someone who has a hard heart. We want nothing to do with that kind of spiritual condition. See, here are the key verses in, in chapter 5, verses 20 through 23. It says, but when his heart, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And then listen to this, it says, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your hearts, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Notice what's going on here in this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar's heart was hardened, but he ended up repenting. King Belshazzar here is in the same condition, hardened heart, prideful heart, set his heart up against God and yet does not repent. Why? It's because King Belshazzar had a spiritually hardened heart and it is the silent killer. He didn't know it. He couldn't see it. And it led to his demise. Now, God's word this morning, I think, is, is here to help us understand the dangers of having a, a spiritually hardened heart. In fact, through the life of King Belshazzar in this chapter, I see four warning signs of spiritual calcification or spiritual callousness demonstrated in this pagan king. Let's walk through each of these this morning. Here's the first warning sign that King Belshazzar uh, demonstrates for us is having a distorted view of yourself. If you look at verse one with me, uh, we, we quickly notice that there is a different king who's ruling over Babylon, no longer King Nebuchadnezzar, and that's because about 30 years have gone by since the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And so King Belshazzar is now ruling. He is likely the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. And what we notice him doing is he's throwing a huge party. Over a thousand lords, a thousand of the most important, significant people in the Babylonian Empire are gathered here for this type of feast. Now, one of the things that stands out about this scene is that they're drinking a lot of alcohol. Five different times uh, the passage describes them drinking. They are almost certainly drunk, which is sin and leads to some very bad decisions. But their drunkenness is not the most interesting thing in this scene. Verse one, I think, describes a man who has a profoundly distorted view of himself. 
This gives evidence to the fact that he's spiritually callous towards God because historians tell us that during this enormous party, the, the Persian army had surrounded the Babylonian empire. That at this party, the, the day before, the Persian, uh, the Persian army just defeated the Babylonian army in an enormously important battle. And so during this party, in the midst of the Persian army caving in on them, King Belshazzar is throwing a party. That despite the chaotic and disastrous condition outside their own walls, King Belshazzar is throwing a feast. Like despite the fact that the conditions in his life are screaming, warning, 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 King Belshazzar just goes on living however he wants to live. You see the disconnect here? That he thought he was safer than what he actually was. He thought he was okay, and yet he was far from it. His self-view was distorted. Now, just to illustrate this, you can actually uh, download a certain kind of app on your smartphone that can take uh, a photo that you've taken of yourself or a friend, and it can actually distort the photo. You can take a, a picture of yourself and, and use this app or the filter there, and, and it can make your eyes look five times bigger, or, or your, your nose look enormous, or your mouth look incredibly small. Now, that app is really funny uh, to, to kind of share with your friends and have a good laugh. But the sad news about it is that we can do the very same thing with our own lives, can't we? That we can, we can distort our own view of ourselves in order to make us look not that bad. That we can take our generosity and, and make it five times bigger than what it actually is. We can take our kindness and make it five times bigger than what it actually is. We can take our sin or our vices and make it look small when in, in reality, they're not. And we do this from time to time to convince ourselves that we're okay or to justify the way that we are living. And yet this is exactly what James 1 warns against. James 1 says, do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Has a distorted view of himself. So my question for you this morning in terms of this being the first warning sign is how do you view yourself? How do you know when you're viewing yourself correctly? And I ask that not because the answer is found within, but because having a distorted view of yourself is a warning sign that your heart has become hardened toward God, that your view of yourself is inflated, it's distorted. You believe that you're a lot better than what you actually are. And so I think self-reflection the, the practice and the discipline of taking God's word and, and using that as the standard by which you evaluate yourself is an enormously important discipline. In fact, here's um, a quote kind of unpacking this for us. It says, For self-examination to properly function in the lives of disciples, knowledge of God must lead to both honesty and humility. Honesty in that our call is to be who we actually are before God 
because, because God wants to transform us and cannot transform the people we pretend to be because they do not exist. Humility, because one cannot know God without being humble. The goal is to be who you are with the God who died for you in the midst of your sin. The goal is to grasp grace as you, ra- as you are rather than as you wish you were. Ultimately, the goal of self-examination is to be fully open before God. Rather than leading to fear, self-examination is done in freedom because God has given us his grace. God already knows the sins we are so hesitant to unveil. And so maybe to press this in a little bit further, when was the last time that you just spent time thinking through about who you actually are? When was the last time that you asked the following self-reflection questions? Like, number one, am I comparing myself to other people or to the standard that's found in God's word? Number two, what is, what is it by God, what is God by his grace wanting me to change about how I live, think, or feel? Or thirdly, what are you hiding from God, yourself or others, that you need to confess and repent. Look, if it's been a while since you've asked those kind of heart-level questions, you might be falling into the trap of having a distorted view of yourself. And so we see King Belshazzar here who has this distorted view about himself, but secondly, another warning sign that he demonstrates us is he suppresses the truth about God. In fact, notice what we see next in verses two through four. King Belshazzar, again, is tasting the wine, which in the original language, this is actually written as a euphemism for continually drinking. Again, drunkenness is the theme here. And what he does is he actually demands that the holy vessels of gold and silver taken from the temple in Jerusalem some 50 years before this by King Nebuchadnezzar, he commands that those holy vessels be taken and brought into this party so they can drink from them. And so these are brought in, and him and his buddies and the concubines begin to to drink more alcohol from these holy instruments. And yet they not only drink alcohol and get drunk, but they are worshiping other idols with them. Look, this is beyond deplorable. Like he's taking the sacred, holy, set-apart instruments used for Worship of God, worship of Yahweh, and desecrates them, uses them as a a way to give a toast to their gods and their idols. And it's not as if he didn't know what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that this was an act of sacrilege against the God of Israel, against Yahweh, and he didn't care. Suppresses the truth about who God is, which led him deeper and deeper into sin. In fact, this is exactly what Romans 1 describes. Romans 1 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's exactly what King Belshazzar and his friends are doing, suppressing the truth about God, leading them into deeper idolatry. Look, I think that suppressing the truth about God, this is a clear warning sign of a heart that has become hardened because the person is ignoring the only solution to their problem of a hardened heart. They're taking God's word, which is the answer for a hardened heart, and throwing it away. They're taking that key, which God's word is, that unlocks us from the prison of cell, and they are throwing it away. I think one of the clearest ways that you can detect this in your own life is if you kind of carry this attitude. You may not say this out loud, but if you have the type of attitude within your own heart that says something like this, where you say, God, I know that this particular sin is wrong, but I'm gonna do it anyways. God, I know that gossip is wrong, but I'm gonna do it anyways. God, I know that lying is wrong, but I'm gonna do it anyways. God, I know that sexual morality is wrong, that this act here is, is evil and sinful, but I'm going to do it anyways. And we don't say that out loud, but our actions give evidence to that type of attitude. And this attitude is almost always with people who cannot remember the last time that they felt conviction and were pierced by God's word. Like the the word of God just kind of bounces off of their hearts. And that's what spiritual hardness does. In the heart, it, it desensitizes us towards God's conviction, towards God's rebukes, towards God's correction from the word of God. It's suppressing who God is so that you can live a type of lifestyle freed from conviction and guilt. King Belshazzar has no fear of the Lord. He is flaunting his disobedience with no shame because he suppressed the truth about God. Well, that's not the only warning sign we see in this passage. He he not only has a distorted view of himself, not only suppresses the truth about God, but thirdly, we notice that he lacks true understanding. And and this isn't to say that uh, just lacking facts, but it's lacking a type of understanding that leads to life, that leads to change, that leads to transformation. I think we see this in a couple of different places in this passage. The first is in verses 5 through 9. The story continues, but with a startling development. Right in the midst of over a thousand of these most important Babylonians who are committing drunkenness and idolatry and sexual morality and blasphemy, verse 5 says that immediately the fingers of a human hand appear. And they write a message on the wall of the king's palace. This is God using a detached hand to send a message to King Belshazzar. How terrifying would that be? Like, just put yourself in that, in that scene there. You're having a good time. You're partying. You're doing all these things. And all of a sudden, this detached hand kind of floats in there and writes a message 
on the wall. Like King Belshazzar is so scared. Verse six says that the, his color changed. Like his limbs grew limp, his knees knocked together. He's scared out of his mind, but who could blame him? And so what he does next, he immediately calls for the wise men, for the astrologers to come in and, and to try to interpret the meaning of the message on the wall. But no surprise, they fail. All right, they, they've done this many, many times. I think this is the fourth time that they've failed to correctly interpret the message. This is kind of a, another theme in Daniel that human wisdom is never the solution to a God-sized problem. And so they fail here. And so King Belshazzar is losing his mind. He is freaked out because he lacks true understanding. He doesn't discern the meaning of the message. He doesn't know what, it, what it's saying. And then the queen comes in. Verse 10, the queen is likely his mother here, probably married to King Nebuchadnezzar at some point. And moms know best, don't they? Even a king needs to listen to his own mom because she reminds him of old forgotten Daniel, right? Daniel, who's about 80 years old at this point, has been forgotten. But notice the way that he's described in verse 11. The queen says, there is a man in your kingdom whom is the spirit of the holy gods. She says he possesses light and understanding and wisdom. Verse 12, he has an excellent spirit, knowledge. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. In summary, Daniel, because he belongs to God, has true understanding. King Belshazzar, you do not. So Daniel's brought in, but Belshazzar shows him no respect. Verse 13 reminds him that he's one of those exiles. And then he tells him his dilemma. He says, look, there's this message written on my wall. My wise men cannot interpret the message. I need your help. And if you correctly interpret, I'll richly reward you. Now, Daniel says, I'll interpret the message, but I don't need your gifts. I don't need those uh, rewards. But before he interprets it, notice what he does here. He actually rebukes him. He admonishes King Belshazzar. He reminds him in verses 18 through 23 of the incredible work that God did in King Nebuchadnezzar's life. Reminds him that, hey, the king before you had a hardened heart. He was proud. He was sinful. He was living in rebellion against God, and yet God humbled him. But then Daniel says in verse 22, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Daniel is telling him this, Belshazzar, you are worse off than Nebuchadnezzar. And the reason why you are worse off is because even though you knew the facts up here, you do not possess true understanding that leads to life change, that leads to transformation. And look, that is a symptom of having a hardened heart against God, that it keeps you from understanding the beautiful and good and life-altering, life-changing words of God. We see this all throughout the New Testament. In fact, one example in Mark 8 Verse 17, Jesus had just uh, completed an amazing miracle, fed the 5,000 with just a few loaves and a few fish. The disciples saw it. They had the facts right of that scene. They were there. 
And yet they did not grasp, they did not understand Jesus's identity and the power of Jesus. So verse 17, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? See the connection there? Hardened hearts lacking understanding. Like a hard heart is synonymous with spiritual ignorance, unable to comprehend and grasp spiritual things. The hardened heart works almost as like a plug that keeps life-transforming knowledge from gripping our hearts and our lives. Ephesians 4.18 describes it this way, that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of hearts. Well, this brings us to our last and final warning sign. In this passage, in verses 24 through 31, we notice an indifference towards spiritual warning and judgment. Verses 24 through 31, Daniel shares what the finger of God wrote on the wall. And this was the message. It says, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting that your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Look, understand that this is a declaration of God's judgment upon the life of Belshazzar. But notice the reaction. There's no repentance. There's no crying out for mercy. There's no asking God to forgive him, asking God for grace. King Belshazzar just continues going on with his life, gives Daniel the reward, and is fairly indifferent. Man, if I'm King Belshazzar in this moment, I'm throwing my face down on the floor and I'm crying out for mercy. Like I'm asking God for forgiveness and for grace, and yet he doesn't do any of that. At least the text doesn't tell us that. And the result is that night he's killed and he loses his kingdom. Now, church, one, of the thing that, one thing that we tend to do when we come to passages like these is we get to verses 30 and 31, and we tend to say to ourselves, ah, there's God's just judgment. Finally, God's wrath is poured out, right? Thanks for showing up, God. Finally, you punish the evildoer. And yet, let me just kind of challenge us with that mindset. That is, that is possessing too narrow of a view of God's wrath. In other words, it's not as if God had been suspending his wrath up until verse 30 and 31. It's been there all along, just passive. See, Justin Peters writes this about God's wrath, that many think of God's fearsome acts of judgment as earthquakes, fires, pestilence, and famine. Not necessarily. The most fearsome acts of God's judgment are when he simply gives people over to depraved minds, that the wrath of God's abandonment is his most fearsome act of judgment. Now, Peters is alluding to what theologians call the passive wrath of God. And I think that we mistakenly often think that when God displays the wrath of God, that it's only in 
some of these active ways, like the earthquake, or uh, like fire from heaven, or a global pandemic, or, or, or even hell, eternal separation from him. Yet that's only one aspect of his, of his wrath. That's the active side, but there's also the passive side, where when God utilizes his passive wrath, he allows people to live however they want to live. He, in an unrestrained manner, lets them live a life without him, without needing him, living a life indifferent towards him. And that is in some ways more terrifying than the act of wrath of God. That is, is scary. You think of, of Romans chapter one, the passage I read earlier, finishes with three different references to God giving them up or God giving them over. Like Romans 1 is the spiritual downward spiral of sin. Like you go, you go through that passage and it's one step after another of deeper and deeper and deeper into depravity. And at that point, because of the hardness of heart, God gives them up. God gives them over to live however they want to live. It's the passive wrath of God. And living this life of having this distorted view of oneself, suppressing the truth about God, lacking true understanding, being indifferent towards judgment, is living a life in which God hands you over to the sinful desires of a hardened heart. And like Belshazzar, living like that, you're actually storing up more wrath for the day of judgment when God's passive wrath becomes active. The ultimate day of reckoning is coming when God's passive wrath culminates in his active wrath. And look, here, here is the sobering reality, is that like Belshazzar, your life and my life is being weighed in the balances by God Almighty a holy and just judge. He's taking our lives and he is judging them. He's evaluating them against his perfect holiness. And here's the bad news. The writing is on the wall. The bad news is that because of our sin, like Belshazzar, God looks at our lives and declares, you have been weighed in the balances and have been found wanting. In other words, because of our sin, the writing that's on the wall of our lives is eternal condemnation and separation from God. And that is a terrifying, terrifying place to be in front of a holy, just God. But I've got good news. The good news is that it doesn't have to be that way. The good news is that your life doesn't have to end that way. The good news is that the writing on the wall of your life does not have to be the words eternal condemnation, that you can have a different set of words that's written over the wall of your life. You can have the words that says, it is finished. That those are the words spoken by Jesus himself 2,000 years ago, who on the cross 
as he's paying for your sin, as he's taking your penalty for your sin, declares it is finished. That Jesus is declaring it's done. It's been paid for, paid in full. So there's no more wrath. There's no more judgment. There's no more condemnation for those who believe in Jesus and turn from their sins. Those are the words that can be written over your life. See, there is a solution to your sin. There is an answer to the dilemma of your life, your life that has been weighed in the balances and have been found wanting, that Jesus has taken your place. See, the queen in verse 11 was right. She was actually partially right. There is a man in whom the spirit, not of the holy gods, but of the one true living God dwells. And his name's not Daniel. His name's Jesus. Jesus is the greater Daniel here, and he died in the place of sinners, yes, including you, including the person who is in the room right now who has the hardest heart, who has the most calloused heart, who has the heart of stone, Jesus died for you. He died for you because he loves you. He died for you because he wants to give you a new heart, that he died on the cross and rose again so that if you believe in him, he takes your hard heart, your heart of stone, and he gives you a soft heart. He gives you a heart of flesh, a heart that can that, that, can, that can respond to God, that can be sensitive to the work of God if you submit to Jesus and give your life to him. Oh, that's our prayer this morning. If you have not done that, that, that is our desire that you would do what Belshazzar didn't do, to throw yourself down before the holy God and cry out for mercy, to ask God to forgive you of your sins, to put your faith in Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross and to turn from your sins and to do that today. Look, don't, don't leave this room without making the most important decision in your life to give your life over to Jesus. In fact, as we close this morning and just set up our time of, of reflection for communion, I just want to give you an opportunity to, to give your life to Jesus, to consider all that Jesus has done for you and to cry out for mercy. And as we do reflect, I just had a lot of time to prep this sermon since I was out last week. I think that there are three groups of people in the room this morning. I think group number one, that you're here today and you have a soft heart. Praise God for that. Praise God for the work that he's done in regenerating your heart. Praise God that he has allowed you to treasure Jesus above all. My encouragement for you is to keep repenting quickly and often. Keep treasuring Jesus above all. Be aware of these warning signs that could pop up in your life. But to praise the Lord for having a soft heart. But then second group of people that are here today, you have a hardened heart that everything that we've been discussing today, you'd say, yeah, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. And look, the reality is you need a brand new heart. You don't need just to make some improvements, make some better habits. No, you need God through his spirit to regenerate your heart and to renovate everything that's within you. And my call to you as we spend this time reflecting is to come to Jesus. He's got his, our arms wide open 
for you to come. He wants to give you a new heart. He's generous and he's kind and he's gracious and his mercy abounds. Come to Jesus. But then the third group, third group I would describe as having a cold or numb heart. That This group, perhaps you find yourself somewhere in the middle between groups one and two, that maybe you don't feel a lot of joy in God like you want to or like you have in the past. Maybe your time in the word is lacking fruit. You're, you're not growing. You're not changing. And so you would describe maybe your heart is feeling numb towards God. Like I want to encourage you that all believers go through that. Like all believers go through seasons where you have kind of a type of spiritual coldness towards the Lord. But I also want to encourage you and remind you that that's not the same thing as having a hard heart. Because the key difference is that someone who has a hard heart doesn't care. Someone who has a hard heart is indifferent, has no remorse for the sin that's in their life. But someone who's battling coldness, battling kind of having a numbness towards the Lord, you understand and you need grace and you're coming to the Lord. And so that's you today. We just encourage you, come to the table Come as we take communion, as we remind ourselves of what Jesus has done, as we take the bread and the juice, come to the table. There is a seat available for you, for you to find grace, for you to find satisfaction, for you to understand that only Jesus can melt a hard, cold heart. So come, he's waiting for you. Let's pray together. God, thank you, Lord, for this wonderfully convicting passage. Lord, thank you that, Lord, you used a pagan king to warn your people of what it looks like to have a hard heart. God, I pray that in your mercy and your grace, Lord, that you, oh God, would melt our hearts with the beauty of Jesus. God, that you would help them over the next couple of moments as we reflect, that you would help us to see Jesus as he really is high and lifted up, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So I pray that you'd move in our midst, that you'd help us to confess sin where sin is there. Lord, that you would soften our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.